Hello, folks, and once again, welcome to the show. I am Josh Vermont. I'm Kelly Hager, and this is Press Play and Scream, part of the Stolen Dress Entertainment Podcast Network. Damn right. And who is our guest this week, Cal? We are joined by new friend of the pod and longtime friend of me, Kathy Ko. Hello. Hello, Kathy. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, now, we went to see the Black Phone a few days ago, had a fantastic time doing it. But before we launch directly into that, I wanted to mention that it felt like about 20 solid minutes before that of what appeared to be really fantastically fun previews for horror films that are coming out. It looks like we're going to have a terrific rest of the summer going into the fall. We've got Beast. We've got Smile. We've got Fall. I mean, so much great stuff at the same time. We've got The Invitation, which looks like really a, a hoot. And so I wanted to put it to you guys. Which of these, if any, are you really excited about? I'm most excited for Nope, which is the third Jordan Peele. I, I still am not even 100% sure what it's about, except Aliens, probably. But I loved Get Out. I loved Us. This looks great, too. It's got Daniel Kaluuya in it. I just, I am in. It looks fantastic. It looks so mysterious. I, I, I love that, yeah, none of us really seems to be entirely certain what that's going to be about. We don't need to know. Like you say, the pedigree of the filmmaker speaks for itself. And yeah, I'm really just on pins and needles waiting for that. Yeah. I am most looking forward to The Invitation. Love a good vampire movie. And this one looks particularly interesting. Yeah, I can't remember the last uh, really compelling looking vampire flick uh, that we've had in the post-Twilight era. So yeah, that should be really exciting. There's also one coming out called Fall, which just is basically about a fear of heights. We don't know anything else about it <laughs> other than that. No, just I feel like the less we know about all of these things going in, it makes it so exciting. Yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm terrified of heights, so fall. It's it's gonna it's gonna get me. I can already tell. That teaser was so short, but really effective. Absolutely. Yeah, they did so much with so little there. And uh, Beast, I mean, wow, what a good time that looks like. Not since Jaws, it seems like, to me, have have we been set up for a man versus nature that's that intense. I mean, again, super exciting. So much stuff coming down the pike all at once. And as Kel and I have talked about in the past, why not? Because uh, when the world is in the middle of a horror film, that's when we get some of our best uh, fright flicks, generally, historically. Absolutely. And so I'm guessing these are the movies that were created and shot during the Trump presidency, which means that in a few more years, we can expect to see the absolute nightmares that come from pandemic, attempted coup, potential nuclear war, second possible pandemic, uh, Supreme Court bullshit, climate change what what nightmare scenarios am i forgetting because i know i didn't list everything that we're facing down right now oh we don't have enough time in the day to list all of that i mean really i think that was a pretty comprehensive list all things considered generally it seems to me like the turnaround time for a lot of these flicks seems to be about within the span of a year maybe year and a half so like uh when we very much at the beginning uh, started this podcast we were talking about uh, halloween kills you know, and the fact that uh, it was very evocative of January 6th, but it had been shot by that point, but it hadn't been edited by that point. So, I mean, we're dealing with stuff probably coming down the pike uh, sooner than you might think that deals with all of these things, certainly. Yay. (laughs) Well, like the man says, (laughs) it was 2022 
everything was horrible and on fire, but pop culture had never been better. (laughs) And I guess bonus for our Patreon subscribers. That's right. This is a callback. Uh, You get to spend 45 minutes with us on Discord as we go down a panic spiral of what we can expect. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. If you don't want to feed money into that for that reward, I mean, (laughs) how far from the pack have you strayed, right? Good God. Um, I mean, it's it's terrifying anyway, so you might as well listen to us panic about it is all I'm saying. More than you already did. Yes. Yeah. True story. Uh, Now, and then there was the film itself, the black film. Kel, if you'd like to give us the uh, synopsis of that officially. Yes. After being abducted by a child killer and locked in a soundproof basement, a 13-year-old boy starts receiving calls on a disconnected phone from the killer's previous victims. That's quite succinct. Yes, absolutely. Oh, and before we go farther, we should probably say content warning for uh, violence against children, both parental abuse and definite murder, but not for the most part, not shown on screen, the parental abuse is kind of implied sexual abuse and torture of children. It's it's a brutal movie. It's intense. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah all those fun things that you want to see in it, like this uh, movie has them. So, yeah. I mean, right off the bat, let me uh, again toss it uh, to you two. Uh, what were your impressions of this one? I absolutely loved it. Um, I had read the short story, and I know you're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I I didn't really remember it that well. But no, I loved the movie. I thought it was I thought it was very tense. I thought the acting was incredible. The pacing was good. I I really enjoyed it. I also loved it. The acting, Ethan Hawke, was incredible. As someone who has loved him since Dead Poet Society, I definitely left that movie uh, with a different way of thinking about him and his skills he was phenomenal in this that's the darndest thing i forgot that he was in dead poet society uh but yeah you're absolutely right he's had an amazing career trajectory since then really he's played so many different roles that are so uh you know vastly removed from each other that guy can really do anything and uh, it's been fun to watch him kind of go from this sort of awkward gen xer to uh, just really showing his range in ways that are amazing. And yes, he was very, very frightening in this movie as the grabber, who was the big bad of this flick, uh, who, yes, grabs uh, young boys. And uh, the movie takes place in 1978. And you've got this uh, fellow who's played by Ethan Hawke, and we barely see even the vaguest flash of his face when we see him abduct uh, Finn, who was the star of this movie, and uh, hustle him into the back of a black van that's filled with black balloons. And he's supposed to be some sort of a uh, party magician. And the way he plays this bad guy is so electrifying. I mean, I forgot within minutes that that was who we were watching. And I feel like he was very much, his performance, all the performances were excellent. His was so much the backbone of this film. I think that without him, uh, or at least without the kind of strong performance that he brought to that bad guy, you don't really have a, a movie that's nearly so memorable. No, I agree. And I think it would have been very easy to go over the top and just kind of, you know, do kind of camp scenery chewing a little bit Buffalo Bill, I think, from Silence of the Lambs. And I thought he just played it perfectly. Like even even when he was being or trying to be, I guess, to be fair, um, when he was his nicer self, there's still uh, still such an aura of menace about him. And the whole movie, there was just this inexorable dread 
you know, it's like, you know, something bad is coming. You don't know exactly what or when, but you feel it coming. And then it just, it does not let up. Yeah. We tend to use the word atmospheric rather liberally on this show to describe these really great flicks that we've been so privileged to see and have to use it on this one as well. As you say, the air is heavy with it. It is gray with it, the entire film from start to finish. And you feel it's palpable. And I mean, that's amazing filmmaking, uh, the way they were able to put that on the screen. Yeah. And I mean, so much of this, I think, also hinges on on Finn, Finny, and his sister Gwen. And it's, I mean, just amazing acting from children. Oh, yeah. Those young actors were absolutely incredible. I can't wait to see what they do next. Now, the thing about uh, Ethan Hawke's character, The Grapper, uh, and this size uh, is as good a time as any do. You know, as Kel said, uh, she and I had read this story uh, as part of Joe Hill's compilation, 20th Century Ghosts, and that came out quite some time ago. Right. And uh, upon reading it the first time, yeah, it didn't necessarily lock in and make the same strong impression that some of the other short stories did. But going back to it now, having watched the film, it makes sense to a certain degree, because although there are a lot of elements in it, which definitely uh, were brought forth into the film and which worked really well in the film, there were also things that were missing from it that were put into the film that I think made the film rise above it, definitely. Like uh, the most basic thing that I can think of off, off the top of my head, in the story, the grabber is described very, very different. He's very much a John Wayne Gacy. He's this uh, morbidly obese uh, party clown. The black balloons are the same. The abduction technique is the same. But, you know, the Gacy thing is very much a, uh, a cliche. Certainly, we've seen it so many times before. And so I thought it was interesting to package this differently and give us, yes, this sort of, as you said, Ethan Hawke gives a performance it's uh, by turns kind of tragic, a little bit playful, not over the top, but certainly there's an exaggerated, almost flamboyant air to him that I thought was interesting. And in the story, uh, we know that the guy's name is Al. Personally, I'm happy not knowing the guy's name. I, I think he just needs to be the grabber. And also the fact that in the story, there's no mask. And I think if you don't have Ethan Hawke in that modular mask where different pieces can come off and be replaced and then you have the smiley mouth and the frowny mouth in different scenes some scenes his eyes are exposed some they aren't that's so much of this story i mean that's it subtextually lets them play with this in ways that didn't come across at all in the short story so that's another thing where again i think this was a huge improvement the original short story didn't take place in 1978 seemed to be sort of contemporary but 78 works better for this story doesn't it i think so i mean well, we have the fact that in the 70s and, you know, in the 80s, when we grew up, parents were basically like, whatever, you know, it's like you were pretty much free to do whatever you wanted. Yes, it was very much an era of latchkey kids. And also uh, over lunch after the film, we were talking about the fact that, you know, there's an anachronism to it that on the one hand, you know, when you first sit down to watch this movie, there's almost a nostalgia at the very beginning of these, you know, kids who are just, you know, there's no phones and iPads and a lot of technology around and a lot of helicopter parenting. Now it's go out to the little league field and, you know, maybe get in a fight and that's like the worst thing that can happen to you. And it was a certain degree of innocence, but 
then you realize that that gave way to abductions like these because they weren't high lit, they weren't talked about, and there wasn't the apparatus to prevent them or to uh, punish them back then as much. So I think it works beautifully on that level because then you, you don't have to ask a lot of questions about the many ways in which uh, in modern day this could have been thwarted. You know, it's allowed to exist in a, in a simpler and more direct form. Right. It kind of made me think of it a little bit in that you have like the big bad supernatural in terms of it, but, you know, just an adult with the grabber in this, but you also have like the bullies that are really just as awful, but, you know. The yellow rain jacket that his sister wears made me think of Georgie. Exactly. And you've got to know that was on purpose with the galoshes. I mean, the second that was on, you know, there's so much early Stephen King DNA in this specific film, it seemed, not, not even just the story, although that's part of it, but that was kind of when it seemed like Joe Hill was at his most raw and time, trying to kind of grasp at the same, make the same lightning in a bottle that his father had made decades earlier. And there's a wink and a nod to this film, absolutely in the same way. Yeah, the yellow rain slicker scene is very, very deliberate. And the fact that it is, yeah, uh, set in this uh, previous time period is as well. Yeah, it had a lot to say about that, for sure. To circle back, because I haven't read the short story, it's interesting that you say that the parallels to Gacy are even more evident in the book, because I thought they were really evident in the movie. He takes young boys, he does magic tricks. The mask could also be standing in for the clown makeup. So it's interesting that he is supposed to be very even more similar in the book exactly because to go beyond what was in the film would make it derivative and it would be like gilding the lily to a large degree whereas with this yeah you can recognize it but you're not rolling your eyes at it you're not saying oh we've seen it before necessarily except in as much as you know there was a similarity to a lot of grabber type you know serial molestations and killings in real life back then but yeah absolutely i agree com- completely with that now another thing that set this apart uh, from the original story, which I think worked better in the in the movie. The story, again, it's a short story. And the dialogue between Finney and the Grabber is taken word for word. And I do love that because it works very, very well. I like that they preserve that in the movie. But in the story, the story starts immediately with Finney getting grabbed. That's the very first thing. And then after that, we're in that basement with Finney. And that's it. That's the whole story. We do not leave that basement. So as claustrophobic as the movie is, and it is, it was hammered home a lot more. Like, there are no scenes with the sister, uh, who, by the way, is an older sister in the story, and her name is Susanna. And she's, like, not a young psychic, but she is this older sort of believes in tarot and crystals type, which works a little bit, too. But there's a scene where he's fantasizing that she might be out there on her bike looking for him and might even find him. But that's as far as that goes. And whereas in the movie, you have the sister as a younger sister who is far more uh, fleshed out as a character. And again, gets these uh, psychic dream flashes, you know, which is not a kind of early Stephen King thing where, as you said, you, you've got the realism horror of somebody actually getting abducted. And then you have sort of the tangential supernatural thing that's going on that's not really necessarily central to the horror, but still helps drive the plot to a certain degree, which she certainly does. So it breaks us out of that claustrophobia to a certain degree. We get to see her, get to see the father, get to see the cops, 
you know, that kind of a thing. We get to see sort of the larger world around that. We need that. We're going to have, you know, an hour and a half length film. Right. And I think um, one of the things that did really well is, you know, the, the movie is so tense and doesn't really let up. And then we have one scene with the sister where she's kind of somewhat praying, I guess. And it really, it breaks the tension. And you wouldn't think that it would work this way, but it really does. It's when you break the tension, that makes the return to that tension hit even harder. Because it's, you know, you relax, you let your guard down a little bit, and then bam. Yeah, there's not a lot of laughs in this film, but there are a couple. Yeah. There was that, and there was uh, uh, the character of Max, who's uh, this uh, hilariously offbeat cokehead. Uh, and honestly, it took me several minutes to convince myself that it wasn't Jim Carrey with a big fake nose, because there was something <laughs> about the portrayal of it and the eyes that really made me think, shit, is that him? It could be him. <laughs> You know, but I mean, that, that guy uh, did a terrific job, certainly. And again, there are moments where the grabber is almost funny in the same way that, uh, you know, you mentioned Buffalo Bill. You, you get a couple of laughs, like not comfortable laughs from Buffalo <laughs> Bill during a few of those scenes in uh, Silence of the Lambs. Kind of the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's the actor having some fun with it, definitely, and letting their hair down. Although in Buffalo Bill's case, the hair had first been cut off of the cadaver of a human woman. But you understand what I'm saying. No. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah, I didn't scalp her. I just, I call it like I see it. Anyway. We are going straight to hell. But yeah, so another, and another difference was that they made more of the other kids that had been abducted in the movie. In the book, we know about Bruce Yamada, the uh, baseball player. Uh, he's the only one who ends up making the phone call. There are no calls from other dead kids. I think, I think you need the other kids. I think you need mm-hmm. all of this to sort of come together in a larger tapestry as opposed to the sort of more straightforward telling in the, in the story. Yeah. And I, I think honestly, the, the fact that these kids, they've all forgotten who they are because, you know, I, I guess like they said something like the first thing you lose is your name, mm-hmm. which you would think that would be the last thing you would lose, but you know, I'm not an expert in this. But it was so interesting to think about and so sad to think about. Like you have all these kids and they're they're trying to help, but you know, they're they're kids and they're dead kids. So they they really can only do so much. Absolutely, definitely. Yeah. There were certain things though, like the uh, the phone breathing, the black phone on the wall kind of uh, expanding and contracting. That was from the that was from the book. Uh, the dialogue on the phone with the ghost of Bruce Yamada was again word for word, all the dialogue. Was, was taken straight from the uh, story. And I think it works. I think it worked very well, definitely. Yeah. Uh, the guy who directed this, Scott Derrickson, also directed Sinister. Nice. Which, which is his other, oh, Ethan Hawke's one of his other horror movies. And, oh, God, I loved that one. I also liked him in The Purge. So Ethan Hawke as horror star, I am here for all of it. And in Daybreakers. And also recently, he was the villain in the Disney Plus series Moon Knight. And he mm. did a really terrific performance there opposite Oscar Isaac. The two of them had great chemistry. He was so good in Moon Knight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Playing a character that wasn't even from the comic book. He just made him up out of whole cloth. Did a terrific job of it. So, I mean, he's had a fun year, it seems like. I loved how everything that the kids told Finney came into play later on. We used all of the information that they gave him 
to ultimately get the finale that we get. Absolutely. Yeah, again, it comes together more in the movie. It's almost more of a collaborative effort with the dead kids and with him than in the story, where the story is just Bruce saying, put dirt in the phone and then smack him with it. And especially if you've got this huge hulking clown coming at you, I don't buy that for a second. Ethan Hawke, with a series of Rube Goldberg traps that have been laid, yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense. Absolutely. More satisfying as an ending, definitely. Uh, getting back to Max, who is the brother of the grabber, who happens to be staying there. I loved that character. And I am pretty sure that if he had been just, you know, even, even a little bit younger, you know, like if he were, say, that age now, he would for sure be a true crime podcaster. Oh, 100%. And that was a lot of fun. Because, you know, once again, just like the, the it callback, that's on purpose. That absolutely is. Yeah. Because that also was not in the story. In the story, Max only comes down the stairs. Oh, my God. And then, you know, he's not in the story very long, I guess, is my point. Yeah. <laughs> but on, uh, on screen, he was uh, a lot of fun. But since you mentioned the fact, uh, which is a big plot point that comes out later, that he is the grabber's brother, I got to ask you folks, when did you know that uh, Max, who the cops had already you know, visited was connected with it more than just being obsessed. Um, well, pretty early on in the movie when they show him, then they pan down to the basement where where Finney is. So that was when I figured it out when they told us. No, but that's just it. They told us before that. When the cops went to investigate and then when they were talking to him, right? And then the cops were on their way out. They didn't harp on it. The camera didn't stay on the door. But as they were on their way out the door, that was the door from the sister's vision. And that was what I knew. It's the same house. How many houses have that exact same door? And why would they be showing us the same door? So that was when he was like, no, this is, this is the house. He's in this house. So clearly whoever the he was that like, you know, the grabber was talking about, I figured, you know, yeah. that would be him. Oh, yeah, no, I, I needed the, the way more obvious showing when they panned out. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm the same as Kelly. I didn't put it together until they panned down and we saw what was underneath yeah. in the basement. A great reveal. I totally missed the door. Yeah, no, it was fantastic. That's, again, I love that they didn't harp on it. They just sort of like, you either notice it or you don't notice it. And that's cool. Don't notice but, it. Cute little detail. I love that moment. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, one thing we both did pick up on though, uh, the, the paper boy who went missing uh, and Kathy will tell this better than I will, but. Sure. Uh, it's another true crime reference that we've got lots of John Wayne Gacy in there. But the young paper boy is very reminiscent of a young boy named Johnny Ghosh who went missing on his paper route when he was delivering with his dog. And people saw the dog sitting beside the undelivered papers, just like we get in this movie. And so I'm almost wondering if it was on purpose, just like the John Wayne Gacy stuff obviously had to be and the Stephen King stuff obviously had to be. I don't think anything was accidental about this movie. I, I really don't. And I think that, uh, you know, these things that you've brought up, which again, were not in the story, that's the, that's the director. I know Joe Hill himself was probably largely involved in this retelling of it. And I like that to a certain degree. I like the fact that there's a guy who, you know, now he's a big star and now he's famous and, you know, he puts out a book, it's at the bestseller list pretty much every time. And, you, you know, have the Nosferatu uh, adaptation on television he didn't necessarily have to go back to this and fix it, so-called, in any way. But I like that he did. I like that he thought, no, I could have I put more into this. I could have done, done a little bit better and made it a little bit more interesting. 
know, I, I, I love the re-examination of what was a very, very simple premise into something that's a very artful movie, I thought, definitely. I agree. And I mean, I feel like a lot of what we're getting now is more prestige horror. And I don't know that I would necessarily say this is that, but it definitely it's it's intense and it's it's thoughtful, if if that makes sense. It's it's not here for camp, it's not here for fun. It's here to basically stress you out. It's a very smart movie. Yeah. Absolutely. And a very clever one in its approach. And you are right. This is absolutely uh, what many would call an era of prestige horror. And that's a hard thing to put your finger on in terms of a definition. I would kind of say that anything that's not sort of a more traditional slashery uh, franchise kind of a thing, which we, of course, are hugely in love with those films as well. But things that break from that mold, things that aren't necessarily easily classifiable as that's a zombie film, that's a vampire film. This is kind of a ghost story. And you tend to see more of those in prestige horror, I think. But even then, it's not, you can't really pin it down. It's not a serial killer film. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a story that exists on its own haunted terrain. And I dig that about it. I absolutely do. I, I can't wait to see again so much more of this sort of thing that's not easily classifiable. And it's not explained to us in advance. It's not like you're going to go see a Michael Myers film and Michael Myers is going to kill a lot of people. And then he's going to kill a lot more people. And then Jamie Lee Curtis is going to try and stop him from killing a lot of people. He's probably going to get away at the end. It's like, we'll watch it. We love that shit. But, you know, again, give me something like this, uh, you know, smile trailer that we saw. I don't know what the hell that's about, but I pissed myself, <laughs> you know, or fall. How do you turn that into a whole movie? I don't know, but I'll watch it. You know, yeah, I love that stuff. I'm excited to find out how you turn fall into a whole movie. Uh, I'm going to be stressed out the entire time. Whatever poor jerk sees it with me, I am going to be clutching their hands the entire movie. <laughs> so so you're probably bring ice for your hand, yeah, bring ice, kid. Yeah, you're gonna end up leaving all of your fingernails in the seat cushion. <laughs> I would think after that, I'm going to leave all my fingernails embedded in your palm. That's fair, that's yeah. okay. I felt like I need my hands to make a living or anything. You know, I'm sure I'll be fine. <laughs> I will, you know, your birthday's coming up. I will get you like one of those transcribing things. Because he new hands? Are you going to give me new hands? <laughs> yes, I will get you hook hands like Drew in 30 Rock. Awesome. It'll be great. Oh, God. Now, there's been a slight controversy about this flick, and we should probably touch on it a little bit because some people... Uh, some critics, have read some homophobia into this movie. I mean, Kel, I kind of wanted to get your perspective on it. Okay, well, with the caveat that I am not Little Miss Voice of the Gays, unfortunately, I have not been elected chief spokesperson yet. The results have not come in yet, but I'm, <laughs> I'm still thankful. I'm, I'm hoping. Uh, so vote for me, please, for big gay ruler. But... Um, Apparently, okay, well, it's it's kind of a two-pronged thing. One of the bullies uses cocksucker as an insult. And, you know, yeah, not great, but it's the late 70s. That's how people talked. That's how people talked, you know, when I was growing up. I don't think it's necessarily a gay thing so much as it is just an insult thing. And then they also read Ethan Hawke as the grabber as a little bit... A little bit effeminate and there is definitely 
the implication that he molested the boys before killing them. It's it's not stated outright, but subtext wise, that's that's definitely what I thought. I mean, I I don't want to tell people that if it upset them, that's not valid because, you know, feelings are feelings and, you know, whatever. But um, definitely vote me for ruler of the gays. I mean, if it offends you, whatever. Feelings are feelings. I'm great. Yeah, I think you might have lost the election. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. Whatever. Vote for me or don't. I don't care. But um, it's I don't like I I don't want to say that if if this upset you and you feel like it's homophobic, that's not valid. But I mean, he's a villain. He's not supposed to be great. And to kind of paraphrase my beloved 21 Jump Street, maybe it would be more homophobic to not have him be kind of gay. I don't know. But I didn't read him as gay. I read any abuse that he did to the children as sort of more a further exercise in pain and humiliation as opposed to something that he really enjoyed doing. Yeah. Like sexually, like sexual gratification wise. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm with you on that. Definitely. Uh, I think that, well, I mean, when we walked out at the end, I I even said specifically, you know, that uh, his, in my mind, his performance was because my first thought was, Oh, it's a little bit of a riff on Johnny Depp as Willy Wonka. And I was like, that's fucking stupid because Johnny Depp as Willy Wonka was just everyone's headcanon of Michael Jackson as a predator. That's really, that's the, that's what he was playing. That's how he was playing it. And there was definitely a brushstroke of that, I thought, in this. And I would not call that homophobic. I would, you know, he's, you know, he's a child molester and he is an evil person. Uh, And I don't think that that is, concept that is married to homosexuality per se. I think that that's uh, a pathology that is going down a much darker and different path. So I think it's a little strange to kind of glom the one onto the other. But again, as you say, I mean, it's it's a little bit there for the interpretation. And just like uh, with the, and I'm not sure that it was a bully. I could be wrong about that. I I was under the impression that it might have been Robin or one of the other not bully kids who used the word cocksucker, which as you say, was definitely a term back then. That said, you've got a writer who can use any term that he feels like. He chose that one. And I think it's because there is a dark current of sexuality as a whole running through this movie like a river. Not homosexuality, but dangerous sexuality, predatory sexuality that, again, is, is very different from, you know, the general gay experience. This guy is a different creature. This guy, you know, is a monster. And I think that's a good reason to advocate for the use of that word, just to play on the audience's kind of subconscious, like a, like a stubborn single keynote on a piano, just a little thing to kind of get under your skin, not necessarily to overthink it, as I think some of the critics perhaps did, but to just get a, get a reaction from you in that moment that is contributory to, again, the kind of uncomfortable pubescence and sexuality as a whole. Uh, through the film. And you, you mentioned uh, that it was, you know, subtextual that he molested them. I mean, you could say that in the sense that Ethan Hawke at no point looks directly into the camera and says, by the way, I've totally been molesting these children. <laughs> but short of that, and that might have been in the deleted scenes, I don't know. But uh, short of that, though, yeah, we know that's what he's doing. 
I mean, I, I love that they don't have to say it to really, really say it, you know? Yeah. And they don't have to show it. You get how awful it can be without having one scene of that in the movie. Yeah, the, the less specific you are about it, as with anything in horror, the more we can fill in the blanks that'd be far more terrifying than anything like that that you'd care to actually show us, you know, or even explicitly tell us. Yeah, definitely. So again, that was uh, very well done too, I thought. And kind of just to continue what Kelly was saying, I don't want to speak for anyone. I definitely shouldn't be speaking for anyone as a straight person. But look at the inspiration. John Wayne Gacy, his victims were young boys. Let me introduce you to Jeffrey Dahmer, again, whose victims were young boys. So it's not like it's taking, it's not grabbing from actual events. Absolutely. And I think if that inspiration wasn't there, you might think of it differently, but it is. You can read it in the subtext. Yeah, I mean, and these aren't gay icons we're talking about here. No. <laughs> you know, they're not even gay as we understand the term. They're, you know, predatory humans. For them, it's not even really about sexuality. It's, it's about power, uh, like with so much sexual assault, really, when you come right down to it. So again, I, I, I think it's a little bit of an apples and oranges thing. Again, which is not to say that I uh, don't understand why the concern was raised, but that was just sort of, yeah, my, my way of thinking about it, having sort of read both sides of it. You know, it's good to have these conversations. I think it's good to you know bring this stuff out in the open, and you know if if people have that criticism, yeah, by all means, let's talk about it. It should be talked. All film, if it's good, uh, should invite uh, conversation and uh, should invite debate. My uh, mentor in film school, Ron Falzone, used to say the worst thing that an audience member can say when the lights come up at the end of your movie is, "Where are we going for dinner?" Though, for the record, we did go to Shake Shack afterward. We had a lovely time. We did go to Shake Shack, and I regret nothing. That was that was a wonderful decision on our parts. 10 stars. Would recommend. Absolutely, yes. And now you're probably thinking to yourself, how much did Shake Shack pay them for that? And the answer is nothing. Unfortunately, we actually had to pay Shake Shack for the food. If we had just told them, look, we're going to give you a shout out on this horror podcast that nobody listens to. Fives of listeners every time. (laughs) Oh, God. But an excellent film. Definitely. Very glad we saw it. Uh, Any uh, final thoughts on it? I actually have a question for you, too, because I have an answer to this. I'm wondering what you guys thought. Was there anything about the movie that you were left unsatisfied by? Anything you wish they had explored more or done differently? I know what mine is, but... I know what yours is, too. I don't have that for myself, but I agree with what you are going to say because we talked about it. Well, what's uh, your point? It's the father and the abuse. There is a scene kind of early in the movie. We show him clearly abusing his daughter. It is clear he's abused both of them numerous times. And it doesn't go anywhere. The dad kind of halfway sort of apologizes at the end. And you're not even really sure what he's apologizing for because he's just kind of terrible all around. And it's never brought up again. And I almost for a minute, when you find out that the grabber also uses a belt, thought the movie was going somewhere else. That this might have been something Finney was creating to get away from the abuse of his father or to kind of keep it, you know, in a different area of his mind so that he could function with the abuse that was happening. But obviously that's not what happened, but it just, it never goes anywhere. And I thought it was interesting that the grabber also uses the belt. If you play naughty boy, the game of sneaking up the stairs, but it's never addressed. So I was kind of let down by that never resulting in anything at the end of the movie. I love that. 
honestly. I, I, uh, I love that they didn't make it into a really defined arc unto itself, which needed to have any sort of special thing addressed about it or any sort of satisfying conclusion about it. Because first of all, in 1978, what we're, what we're looking at on screen, in retrospect, that's absolutely child abuse. In 1978, it's what happens when you mouth off to your parents, even if you have parents who aren't drunken slobs like Jeremy Davies is playing. Jeremy Davies, by the way, I'll watch him play a weirdo in anything ever since the 90s. He's always been fantastic. I, I like that that didn't need to be well-defined. It did feel, again, going back to old school Stephen King, like from the late 70s, the father felt like a character from one of those stories of, uh, you know, the drunk, very much a Jack Torrance type to a certain I was just going to say. Yeah, you know, the drunk father and, you know, he beats the kids and he hates himself for it and you can see it in his eyes and he's just such a weak man. He's just such a weak man and so pitiful and so angry. And, uh, you know, and I like that at the end, you could say he had kind of a redemption arc in the same way that that father often will in an old Stephen King book, you know, or movie, but you don't really need to see him like flushing the vodka down the toilet and, you know, saying he's going to go to church meetings from now on. No, it it can be ambiguous. It can be, because ultimately, no, I don't think probably much was resolved from any of that. Ultimately, Um, I did enjoy, again, as something that was not in the story, his relationship with his daughter. Uh, and yes, it was to a certain degree an abusive relationship, but it was a believable one. And even though he's a shit, once you find out where his fear is coming from, you don't root for him. But you, on some level, sympathize with his terror at the idea that he had a wife who was uh, extremely mentally unstable, and clearly that didn't end it anywhere well. And now he's got this daughter who's showing the same signs. Again, doesn't excuse him even slightly, doesn't make him likable. But I, I, I appreciated the nuance of that. I think a lot of actors, by the way, would have overplayed that uh, to a certain degree. But I liked his performance. I liked that arc. I liked the messiness of it. I, I, I didn't really feel like it needed a resolution. I loved the belt pepper, obviously, because you're absolutely right. Again, there were no accidents in this film, no mistakes about this. We see the grabber sitting there with the belt to evoke a very specific fear that we just saw a few scenes ago. And also, yeah, opens the door to questions like yours. Uh, How much of this was, because that's the thing about the black phone as a concept. And that's going back to the story and to a certain degree, the movie, is it ringing? Is it really? Would you hear it ringing if you were in a situation like that? How fucking crazy would you go? I mean, and would you hear the voices of people who you knew were in this room and died? Does it have to be supernatural? No, I'm not even really sure it was, to be honest with you. But I like that. I like the ambiguity of that, definitely. And I like that uh, how much of this is being brought on by the trauma in Finney's head. Definitely. I mean, the only way that we know it's not all in his head is the fact that he got the, the combination to the lock to get out of the house. Ah, but the combination to the lock was written on the wall. We think that he got the fact that it was the, you know, from the phone, but you could theoretically make the leap that he discovered all of these things around him on his own. Like, probably not. It's more fun to think that, no, it was ghosts on the phone. I think that yeah. that's the most straightforward thing. But a true skeptic could make these leaps and, and say, yeah, but maybe this was his own ingenuity talking to him, not these dead boys, but himself. Maybe he's saying, look at the, the socket across from the toilet. What's above it? Can you dig into it? Like, you know, and that's really another question, by the way, to throw to the room. 
Uh, would you have thought of any of these things if you were in his situation? Would you have thought of the uh, the trick with the rug, getting the the rope up to the grating, any of that stuff? And then Finney grew up and wrote the screenplay to The Usual Suspects. <laughs> I was going to say Home Alone, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was just thinking the fact that everything in the room ended up being useful. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, and like good for his story. But no, yeah, Home Alone too. I mean, you know, grew up to be be very successful, Finney. <laughs> so many of our favorite movies. <laughs> That's a nice thought, isn't it? Grows up to be a Hollywood screenwriter, shit. Probably dies of a cocaine overdose. <laughs> it's like 30th birthday, so all of this shit was for nothing. He was on his way out anyway. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Probably. Another cheerful episode with us. Oh, I yep. think it's Child abuse. Really- child murder cocaine <laughs> overdoses because why not that's right got ethan hawk with the guitar nobody knows what it's like be the grabber <laughs> <laughs> can't rhyme anything with grabber so he's fucked on that one all right well folks out there in podcast land thank you so much once again for tuning in to listen to us ramble about the black phone and if you haven't seen it and we haven't spoiled it the Dickens out of it for you, by all means, go and check it out. It's definitely worth your ticket money. It is a fantastic horror flick. And anytime you can support horror in theaters these days without getting sick and dying, I say go for it. Absolutely. And this one was, I mean, I, I guess easy to say because we didn't get sick, but definitely worth seeing. Kel, who do we have on next week? <laughs> next week, so far as I know, we are watching Midsommar with my girlfriend's daughter. There it's you go. Awkward as fuck. <laughs> the girl is 17 folks this is gonna be a gas <laughs> it's her favorite horror cockers. movie i oh sorry no just that she's gonna be talking to two all the cockers like us <laughs> you know i mean <sighs> but i i would like to point out this is her favorite horror movie i am not i am not traumatizing my girlfriend's child but no yes indeed not <laughs> so again thank you so much for being on the show it's been wonderful talking with you and uh, we hope to have you back soon absolutely it was fun to be on thank you guys for having me and thanks for uh lending the true crime knowledge because we can always have more of that on episodes like this that actually do reference uh you know some fairly notorious serial murderers you know it's good to have someone who actually can bring the facts to go with the bullshit that i spew we speak (laughs) yes always happy to fill that role (laughs) definitely So until next week, once again, I am Josh Vermont. I'm Kelly Hager. And remember, everyone deserves one good scare. Thank you. Have a nice day.